The Seattle Seahawks offseason continues as the team transitions from free agency to the draft. Joining us to dig into that, as well as some potential draft targets, is the gifted analyst from Seahawks on Tape and the co-host of the Seattle Overload podcast, Maddie Brown. Let's light them up. I'm Jackson Bevins, and this is Cigar Thoughts. Welcome back to the Cigar Lounge. I am Jackson Bevins, and along with my aerodynamic producer, Mike Barwin, this is the Cigar Thoughts Podcast. Mike, how are we doing today? We're doing well, Jackson. You can hear the leaf blowers in the background, which is fitting because you know I've been in the wind tunnel testing out all the airflow, all of the above. (laughs) I'm feeling sleek. I'm feeling ready to podcast, buddy. How are you? I'm doing great, man. You look amazing. And, you know, we're going to keep some momentum going because last week we had a really detailed discussion with Greg Bell about each of the Seahawks free agency moves and how it's affected the various position groups. It was honestly the perfect lead in, I think, for today's conversation because Seattle's roster decisions over the last few weeks have shaped the way they'll approach the upcoming draft. That's why we're stoked to be joined by a friend of the show. He writes for Seahawks on tape, co-hosts the Seattle Overload podcast with Griffin Sturgeon, and he joins us to dig a little deeper into where the Seahawks are at. He is Maddie Brown. Maddie, thanks for coming back on. It's great to be back. What was it this time last year that we... Uh... We connected, I think. Yeah, man. Yeah. (laughs) The feedback from that episode was awesome. I had so many people like, that guy knows so much. (laughs) There we go. One might venture to say he knows too much. It becomes a problem at a certain point. I think that's fair. You're you're too knowledgeable, goddammit. They have to handle me. And uh, and and you know I gotta ask you about this because it's just one of the coolest moments. As someone that's been following your work for a while, you had the opportunity to be in the press pool. Uh, for Pete Carroll, and uh, asked him a question that kind of went viral. <laughs> you want to run that back for us? Well, that was awesome. So obviously with the Seahawks playing in Munich, Munich is closer to the United Kingdom than Seattle is. If you ever look at a map, Munich is quite close. Munich's like driving down to Tacoma from Seattle. Maybe not quite that close, <laughs> but it's closer. So with the Seahawks playing in Germany, managed to um, get accredited with uh, Seahawks on tape, my Substack, free plug, and got to ask <laughs> Pete Carroll a question that was on everybody's lips, which <laughs> was quite a specific question about the scheme and the defensive scheme. I think last time I was on, I was talking about their bare fronts and how they've been running bare fronts. So I kind of asked Pete, he brought up the Rose Bowl. So I just asked him about the Rose Bowl and... I, you know, he clearly liked the question. Also asked some other cool questions and it was a great experience and would like to do more of that. Obviously the location is a slight challenge, but it was the Seahawks PR were were great about uh, getting, getting me into the the Zooms when, when they, you know, did it via Zoom rather than in person. So yeah, got to ask a slightly more nerdy question. I think most people would ask and I think it was cool seeing Coach Carroll uh, talk about football and yes. he actually like wants to talk about football. Kind of like how Bill Belichick, if he gets asked a football question, uh, you know, he clearly enjoys that, which like, you know, there's lots of different styles of uh, of questions. And I think having that like really nerdy question every now and again is probably quite fun for Pete. So great experience and cool answer um yeah yeah well you could tell how much he enjoyed it right like he he was taken aback and he was just like okay 
this guy knows ball. <laughs> and he was able to dig into that stuff because, you know, I, I think a lot of times when you have those press conferences, it really is, you know, reporters are trying to ask questions. Not that the beat reporters and stuff don't know ball, but they're asking questions that are, are designed to be accessible for everybody, no matter how much they pay attention to football. And so coaches get used to answering that level of question, but behind the scenes, that's the shit they're talking about, right? Like they are getting nitty gritty on scheme and personnel and how to adapt and all of that stuff. And you could just see his eyes light up. So if you guys saw that clip or heard that clip last season, this is the man and we are stoked to have him back. Okay, so like I mentioned, we spent a lot of time last week talking about each of the Seahawks free agency moves, and I want to focus today on how that informs their approach to the draft, but we would be remiss not to draw on your expertise for how they approach the last couple of weeks. So I'll break this next question into two parts. First one, what has been your overall impression of Seattle's free agency so far, and which moves stand out to you the most? Well, my impression is that I think they were taken by surprise somewhat by how free agency played out, specifically at the inside linebacker position and we can kind of dive into some of those moves perhaps but I don't think they expected I mean John Schneider's come out and said it on his radio show on Seattle Sports don't think they expected the inside linebackers to sign as quickly as they did typically that's a position where they wait it out but as Schneider described guys got offered a number and they took that number uh, early in the process and so that just reduced the pool and Seattle ended up, you know, signing Devin Bush, which is low cost, potentially high reward, but there's very little risk financially there. And then reuniting with Bobby Wagner, which that is a big topic you can dive into. But Oh, we're, we're going to, man. I, I want to specifically get your thoughts on that. And why don't, why don't we start there? Because that is a move that has many of us very excited and you know, I think it's important, at least for me and the way that I take in football, is to remember that there's two layers of it, at least personally, in that, yes, I want my team to optimize everything. I want them to win as many games as possible. But what brings me to football, the sport, is being a fan, falling in love with players. And I think Bobby Wagner really represents an interesting dichotomy in that sense, and that he is a beloved figure in Seattle sports. He is, to me, Mr. Seahawk of the last 10 years, even with all those amazing players and big personalities. But there might be some on-field concerns. Yeah, is that fair? Yeah, I mean, that's fair. Like, he embodied the Seahawks' coverage. Like, if you if you dive into what they were doing with the Legion of Boom, none of that really works without Bobby. Like, he was able to turn and run downfield with Devontae Adams in, in like, in, in part of cover three like he was able to like a flood pattern where you have like a slot receiver running a deep out route and the cornerback run off like cover three beta Bobby's able to turn and locate the deep out route from his like his hook curl like these are things that you you shouldn't be able to do like and and everyone started looking for that type of middle linebacker but the point being it it's so rare and then it's not just athleticism like there's a lot of smarts and on-field smarts but in 2021 like there's a reason Seattle moved on from him and there's a reason why the Rams had to cut Bobby Wagner and okay they're blowing things up but they weren't able to trade him and this is a guy who was voted an all-pro player and was you know PFF's highest graded linebacker and I think really it's more about usage what he's asked to do versus like the results so like he had 
solid results in what he was asked to do, but it's more like from a coaching perspective, it's more about what was he actually unable to do and how did that, you know, limit what he was actually then asked to do? And and it's pretty obvious if you if you watch it through that he's just not able to do as many things. So you sort of have to accommodate him within the scheme and it sort of limits when he's on the field what you're able to do and what you're not able to uh, and what you are able to do. Um, the good news is like the Rams are running this, a very similar coverage system to what Seattle moved to in 2022. The Vic Fangio kind of derivative style of cover three, not dropping to a spot and, and matching up with receivers, but more kind of thinking about how you're going to match the receivers immediately. And Bobby in that is it's more suited to him because it kind of keeps him in tighter, uh, tighter space asking less of him to go and turn and run with guys most of the time and asking less of him to uh, to get fast sideways. It's a lot more of like kind of playing north-south downhill, which suits him. Mm-hmm. And like I, I know that the coaching staff, like from what I've heard, the coaching staff are really big on bringing him back because leadership-wise, he, he brings so much to the team. Uh, and I think Jordan Brooks last year, he had, a, he had a down year. I think he had a lot on his plate with trying to call the defense for the first time, trying to make sure everyone else is right. And also up front, there was a complete car wreck, um, uh, which was partly coaching, partly uh, player execution, which then no linebacker is going to look good in that. But when you're a young player who's trying to gravitate towards the play calling role, uh, that's going to be tough on you. So Bobby comes in and I don't think he's going to be the play caller anymore but he can kind of settle things down again. The coaching staff will appreciate that aspect that he brings. They just know that they have to come up with a unique plan for him. And that's what John Schneider spoke about at the owners' meetings, how Pete and Clint Hurt have a cool plan for him. I imagine it will be he's like the base early down run, go smack someone linebacker who can sniff out the run super smart. And then maybe on like clear passing downs, we're talking like third and 10 plus. He can come in and be like a blitzing weapon, similar to mm-hmm. like how Jamal Adams was like sniffing around on the play he got hurt on against Denver. Bobby playing down at line of scrimmage where he can beat a guard in close confines. That is exciting. And again, it's one of those where either he doesn't have a coverage or his coverage is very simple. It's just like you take the running back down, right downhill at you. And so it's, it's, it's more simple on him. You know, one of the things Greg talked about last week was, and it's something I hadn't considered, but probably something you've seen in your tape study is on the Seahawks front last year. I mean, to your point, they were not cohesive in their game plan. It felt like they were constantly figuring things out and changing things. But one of the things that he said is they really gave Nchenna and Wosu and Daryl Taylor freedom to kind of freelance and just get into the backfield. However you can, as a result, you were left with two, essentially two interior linemen trying to, take on three blockers and as a result you often had blockers getting free looks downfield and being able to engage the linebackers you know three four yards downfield taking them out of the play or at least moving them off their spot is that something that is consistent with what you saw and I guess to go along with that to me one of Bobby's strengths that doesn't get talked about because it's not really like a highlight move is his ability to shed blocks I feel like on the field having Bobby there kind of solidifies that that if a blocker does get free um he can still beat that guy can still make a play and by doing that take some of the pressure off of 
the other guys, whether it's Jordan Brooks or Devin Bush or even the guys behind him uh, in terms of making their own plays? Well, there's a lot to unpack there. So the two four five thing is for me like it's the biggest story last year of the scheme. So I went all the way to Germany, asked Pete Carroll about the bare front, and in that game against Tampa Bay, Brian Monet was inactive, which signifies okay, we're not going to play with three big interior dudes and play the bare fronts. We're going to play the two four five look. We're going to not have Monet. And the problem with that against the Buccaneers was they switched up their tendencies. They came out with the run plays to beat the 2-4-5 and Seattle didn't have a way of properly adjusting. They kind of just stayed in it and they got run on. So uh, Greg uh, Bell talking about that, he was hearing me like <laughs> in the press box <laughs> moaning about, I was sat next to him, he was hearing me moan about it the whole game. Like, <laughs> why are they sitting in this front? They don't have Monet. Greg, what's yep. going on? And Greg's like, <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> so that's quite funny. But throughout the season, it was kind of this flip-flop of, we want to play the two four five, so we get these two guys screaming off the edge, which they did. They had a pretty good pressure percentage. We want, uh, and I'll be writing an article on this, and we want to play the two four five because um, we we can play good cover three out of it, which they did against the pass. They played like I think second best in EPA per play on coverage snaps of cover three. So they they were really good at coverage and, and playing like the new form of cover three that I spoke about. But the problem was they sort of overkilled it. Like as Pete Carroll's termed it, they got the balance wrong. And they kind of, it's funny, like this year there were 3-4 right in personnel. But they ran more 3-4 looking fronts in 2021. 2022, they came out and I'm not sure, like there's a lot of uh, things you could expand on here, but I'm not sure if the front office necessarily realized how much 245 that the Seahawks coaching staff was planning to run. Like they ran this this nickel, uh, you know, two interior defensive linemen playing heavy to a guard, uh, two wide nine outside linebackers. They ran that so, so much. And the the problem with them doing that was, yeah, the, the, the guys on the inside struggled, but more, more than them not being able to do it, like those were very good players in 2021 defending the run mm-hmm. in the bear looks. When you go to a two, four, five, like, any player is going to find it hard against the types of runs that offense has started throwing at it. I've been watching Draymond Jones, who we'll talk about in in Denver. They had the same issues in two four five, and Denver and uh, Evero, the defensive coordinator, they had much more schematic answers for like trying to change the weak point, like they uh, and 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 be a bit more stout in the two four five, uh, compensate for the types of beta runs that were getting thrown at them or run at them, I should say. Seattle was pretty static in it and they struggled with it. And whereas in 2021, they'd have had like a, if they were running that front, they'd have had more of like a 4-3 end type, like a bigger end. They had these two like Mm -hmm. outside linebackers, 250 pound, 260 pound guys who you couldn't really reduce them down to solve the issue. You couldn't play them heavy into the open B gap. Uh, You you could try and stunt them, but it didn't, didn't really work. So there was like a comfort level issue there. So when you, really cycling it back to what you actually asked about the inside linebackers, right? And how that kind of impacted them. Mm-hmm. I don't think any inside linebacker last year would have done well in Seattle system. Now, uh, because the, it was it was just so messy up front, like they're, they're putting things out there which schematically shouldn't work against any team. Like they'd been beat <laughs> and they didn't have the next answer to, they didn't have the next yeah. stage to, to, to compensate for that. And so 
this year when you know they talk about a different scheme maybe committing slightly differently against the run like maybe that means having kind of a bigger end type on the field rather than two outside linebackers all the time maybe it just means running more of 2021 scheme which by the end of the season ken norton jr had worked out the formula for that but like wagner can beat a block yeah he can he can beat a block um but jordan brooks at his best can beat a block now wagner's probably more more instinctive maybe he can get tighter and and um you know he's good in the close confines very quickly at slipping stuff but like i think wagner last year would have struggled in the front too yeah you know and and that's kind of at the heart of this question and for those of you that this is your first experience uh listening to maddie we get in the weeds baby he's gonna get nitty-gritty we're gonna get granular that's why we love him and uh, I want to zoom out from that just a little bit because one of the things that stood out to me about Bobby Wagner's play, we got to see him twice against Seattle. I didn't watch a lot of Rams football, to be honest with you, last year. But of course, watch the two imagine games why. against Seattle. <laughs> I mean, you know, a little Scheudenfraud once in a while this is nice. But uh, what we saw from Bobby in those games, and it look, it's it's easy when we get analytical to forget the emotional aspect of this game. Part of it could be just he was so juiced up to prove against his former team that he still has it. But he was doing things in that game that we haven't seen from him in a few years, which was explosive defensive plays, sacks, tackles in the backfield, turnovers. He was creating plays for his team as opposed to what felt like he was just kind of reacting or trying to keep everything together when he was in Seattle. When you look at how Bobby played last year overall, do you see someone that is still capable of those game-changing plays? Because Seattle has really struggled for a number of years with getting sacks, getting tackles for losses, and getting turnovers. Yeah, absolutely. It's just the thing of uh, usage and how, how you're going to use him. And when I say about playing more north-south, like downhill, uh, aggressive, that's sort of what the scheme allows. And as how um, oh, Raheem Morris, right? Yeah, that's how mm-hmm. that's how he used him. And if you you know if you look at that Seattle game, there was like f- there's four plays where specifically Shane Waldron picked on how the Rams were utilizing Bobby, knowing how they'd use him, and he was he was beat. And and Seattle uh, converted on some of them, and Seattle uh, missed like I think one or two. The the flip side is Bobby's so smart, and when when he's not being not, he hasn't been isolated in the coverage mismatch or he hasn't been isolated in, you know, there's, there are ways that you could do it, like running wide in certain ways, you could you could get him in a, in a mismatch. But he also, like, when he's in the kind of close confines and he's been schemed into that area and he's got the right uh, situation, yeah, he, he, of course he can still make game-changing plays. It's just you just have to be super clever about how you, you use that and you have to kind of hope that a team doesn't, like the offense at the end of the day can dictate quite a few things. So you have to be very smart about trying to avoid that weak spot becoming too prominent. Um, but like we're talking about a $5.5 million uh, one-year deal, right? right? $5.5 million on the cap pit, which is fairly uh, expensive, but like, and credit to Bobby Wagner representing himself again, getting a good deal from John Schneider another year of uh, doing well in free agency. But he's not an every down linebacker in the sense that, you know, he you're going to want to put him into pass coverage 
turn and run and and and, uh, and match up with guys. But he can play on first down and second down and be, you know, solid in, like, inside run stuff. And then on third yeah. down, if it's a long passing distance, then you can activate him as a pass rusher. So, you know, he, he's almost, you know, he'll help you in all facets still. It's just very different to what you'd expect. And when, like, the other factor to this, which I took pelters for on Twitter, but... Cody Barton, who signed for $3.5 million, one-year deal with Washington. And by the way, you know, he is a free agent. He has the right to pick where he he lands. That's an attractive spot. That front's impressive. He gets to call the plays. He gets to play in the middle of the defense. He gets to play in a 4-3. Cody Barton represents very good value for what he signed for. Like he was a much better player than I think people realize. Like again, the car wreck up front. That I agree. Cody Barton was a dis- uh, divisive player among Seahawks fans last year. And I know that you and Griff were fans of his. I, by the end of the season was a fan of his as well. I was surprised at 3.5, you know, on it. Not, not that he, I thought he was going to get so much more. I was more surprised Seattle didn't match. Yeah, and I, I wonder like how much that is. Like maybe Seattle tried to say three point five as well. He's like, nah, that's you know, give me multiple years, or I'll just go to what is better, a better opportunity for me, better situation. Uh, well, you know, he gets the call to plays and prove it in a different spot. And yeah, like he, because right now, like the the big thing is when when Cody Barton was on the field you could do pretty much any coverage that you wanted to do because he's able to carry a guy down the field and he's able to you know he's 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 coverage versatile but when Wagner's on the field you can only kind of spot drop him into a zone which he's still he's still really good at dropping in in a zone and, and getting under stuff but he can't match yeah. stuff and Seattle's running kind of more of a match coverage so they can only really run cover 3 with him or they they, they, they blitz him downhill and, and give him, you know, you can add him onto the coverage in, in certain ways. But, like, he just sure, limits what sure. you, you can do, which I've said, like, a number of times. <laughs> yeah, of course. And and then, you know, he adds to your pass rush package. So there's an add, there's an addition as well. So let's, let's uh, talk a little bit about uh, the rest of the free agent class that they've brought in so far, because I do want to get to the draft. You mentioned Draymond Jones and Devin Bush. They also brought in Julian Love. These are three players I'm really excited about. And just a, a quick overview for those listening. Draymond Jones, a defensive lineman from the Broncos, someone I wasn't super familiar with before last year and then couldn't help but be familiar with after that opening day game. He had three or four real splash plays, just beating guys inside, uh, causing some havoc in the backfield. You know, and 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 he was Seattle's biggest move. You know, this this is maybe the big, I think the biggest free agency signing dollars wise that they've made in the P Carroll, John Schneider era. Uh, certainly since that first year when everything was weird because of the lockout. And I think free agency happened after the draft that year, but in the last decade, they haven't made a move like this. So tell me a little bit about him, but also Devin Bush for uh, those of you out there. He's a Steelers linebacker who was the number one off ball linebacker uh, in his draft class was taken 10th overall out of Michigan Looked amazing his first year, blew out his knee, hasn't really gotten it back. Seattle brought him in on a one-year deal. And then Julian Love, who is kind of a do-it-all switchblade safety, a defensive captain for the Giants. He's only 24. I was thrilled uh, when he came in. I know a couple of Giants fans who were very sad to see him go. Give me uh, a quick overview on those three players. Yeah, so Jones exciting, right? And you look at the money and you're like, ooh, that's, that's like 
uncharacteristically large as you speak to. And uh, I think it was since Sydney Rice, it was like the most head spent on someone. But it's like a classic move, like when you sort of break it down, like the real numbers come out, et cetera, et cetera. It's like the classic move that they've tried where he's 26. It's basically a two-year, $28 million deal. And you compare that to what they did with Cliff Averill, Michael Bennett, when they first signed two-year deals. What they did last year to success with Yuchen and uh, Nuosu, where it's an ascending player signed to a two-year deal. We'll see if Nuosu gets extended. I'm, I imagine they'll be talking about that, especially given their cap situation. But it's an it's ascending player who has established production, like Jones has, you know, f- six and a half sacks, five and a half sacks, six and a half sacks over the past uh, three seasons. He's also active in the backfield, gets tackles for losses. And he could go on to be even better than that. But if he's not, you, you, you're you thinking you're getting a reliable baseline. He's experienced in Seattle, uh, Seattle style of play and system. He can play what we call like the, the five tech, which like that's a loaded term. And everyone goes towards Michael Bennett and how, you know, he's able to play outside of a tackle, say if Seattle's going to run on, on base downs like an underfront, but he can also play inside as the three-tech over the guard and 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 play in the B-gap and reduce down on passing downs and play on the three-tech as well. But really, what when, when you talk about Michael Bennett, the thing that Seattle's not quite replaced from this kind of inside-out, outside-in guy is that ability to take a shot. You think about LJ Collier, like obviously that didn't work out for a, a variety of reasons. But they want someone who, if they see their opportunity, whatever the down, if they see their opportunity to take a shot with open space, they go and do it. And I think that is more what Draymond Jones brings. And Pete Carroll mentioned the same thing at the owners meeting. He said how he takes a shot. And my notes on Jones are like full of like, he takes a shot, he takes a shot, he takes a shot. And that could be first down, second down, third down. Think about how, again, Nuosu, he was able to do that last year. He was taking his shot. If he saw the opportunity, he'd just... You know, he wouldn't play the block necessarily right how they'd, they'd ask them to play it. Like, he wouldn't anchor in. He'd just get into the backfield and make a play. And that's what Jones does. And when they talk about disruption, trying to switch up the mode, trying to split double teams, that's what Jones brings. So really, though, he kind of fits at being in a bare front, like, or an under front. So in Denver, when they played him in the, that 2-4 front that we spoke about earlier, and he's one of the heavy guys to the guard. There's only two interior guys. He's one of the two interior guys. He's heavy to a guard. He massively struggles because he's not that, like, he's not that big, um, but also, like, it's just not his not his strong suit. You want him, you want to get him in one-on-one situations and powering into guys. But uh, this, I think, it, by the sounds of it, it sounds like they want, like Schneider said at the owners' meetings, that this developed quite late because they were in on another deal. Sounds like they wanted Zach Allen first. And I think right. that's because he could do all of those facets. Like he could play in a two-four front a bit more. But Jones, like he he just brings this kind of he'll get into the backfield and and then in, in the passing situations, establish production and a clear pass rush plan to beat dudes. And yeah, he was fun in that week one game. But like I, I you know, he wasn't as dominant in terms of his pass rush as I expected. He's just like a really solid football player. It was more to me about the ability to to like break plays from what you wouldn't necessarily expect. Like even play action pass protection, he's able to free himself of a block and and get to the quarterback when, like think how long you've seen it on on Seahawks games where play action and everyone's just stuck on their block and the quarterback has all day and you're like, 
oh no, this is going to get heaved downfield. Yes. Jones is a guy who will shed himself from that. Like he knows what's up there. He, he wins late when he needs to as well. Let's move back a level. Tell me about Devin Bush. Well, that's an interesting one. So the way I view that from like a roster building perspective is like they, they didn't tend to tan muse cause that would have been expensive. Right. And I think Bush, like, especially in a three, four, you need to find special teams contributors from potentially the outside linebacker spots, but also you, you can get it from the inside linebacker spots. And Bush is, you know, probably going to be a special team first and foremost. Like he'll have to prove on special teams. It's basically just over $1 million, isn't it? On the cap here, unless he earns mm-hmm. his incentives. And so you can't really lose with it. Like he can still take on blocks. Just seems like a case of a guy who's like a really high pick, like 10th overall, just got hurt and didn't, you know, there's confidence things. You can't imagine the kind of mental stuff that athletes go through when they have to rehab an injury like that. And, you know, maybe Seattle's culture, which Pittsburgh's obviously a very successful culture, but different to what Seattle does. Maybe Bush is sort of rehabilitated by that. And, you know, it's, uh, you know, you can't really hate the move because it's like very low cost, very high potential upside, like very athletic player can come down and hit guys because uh, he's short and he has like a different density. Like he's still Compact, over 40 yeah. pounds. He can go, still go like stone someone. So yeah, that is just a fun move, right? Like uh, maybe it works, maybe it doesn't. And, you know, we're so quick to write off guys after injuries if their first year, sometimes even their second year back are less than before. The thing about ACLs is it's not like, oh, you get an ACL and it's a six-month timeline or a nine-month timeline. Sometimes it is. Sometimes it isn't. There's such a wide variety of ACL injuries. And and from what I understand, Bush's was pretty bad. But we've seen players two years after the injury come back to 90 95% of what they are before you know I think that's kind of the gamble they're taking on Devin Bush is that if we can get him back to even 95% of what he was you have a very good player who makes your defense better let's step back one level further talk to me about Julian Love well this is a very interesting one so pat patting myself on the back slightly disgusting but Julian Love, when when that signing is announced, I'm immediately thinking he's like a big nickel. Like I know there was some thought into them moving on from Jamal Adams, but and and don't get me wrong, you need kind of having depth there because Adams's rehab is no joke. We're talking about injured players having to come back, like that looks like a brutal injury process. Yes. The videos he's posting, he looks still looks like he's favoring one leg, which you would. You've torn your what quadricep off your knee like how how does that even work that's insane that's insane anyway so it's nice to have extra insurance obviously they tended ryan neal so they they have that too but love is kind of like this halfway house of uh is he a nickel is he a safety you know he has background playing outside corner at notre dame and he obviously in, in, with the giants and their style of defense they move him around a lot or, or they did move him around a lot and he can run, he can hit, he can tackle in space, and he's very instinctive and impressive. And so why does that matter? Well, if Seattle is going to run more of these bare fronts and they want to do it out of two high coverages, so cover four, cover two, cover six, ideally you don't want 
you, you ideally you want to be a nickel, right? Because you, you don't want your slot receiver having to play against a, a linebacker. But offenses will come out in certain formations, which mean you have the, if it's middle field open, if you're playing standard nickel, the, the second edge defender, right, is like Seattle's outside linebacker type. So basically, what happens if you turn the outside linebacker into a safety, maybe like Jamal Adams, who can set an edge, but he can also walk out to a speedy slot receiver and bash him up and be more move, movable and movement-wise than, than an actual outside linebacker. What Love does is he kind of gives you an extra element to that where he can he can kind of do a bit of the Jamal stuff, but he can kind of, he can play deep safety as well. It, and he, he can do a variety of uh, like coverage techniques. So that was an important role. And you look at college football and how like, for instance, in this draft, you have Brian Branch, but like the Saban, uh, the, the Kirby Smart, like Georgia, Alabama defenses, they have this nickel or what they call the star, which is basically their best athlete, their best football player, because they have to be able to cover a slot they have to be able to apex, so split the distance between like the tight end and split the distance between the 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 receiver or the end man on the line of scrimmage, and they have to be able to set an edge at times. That's a re- and they're in space. They're like to the field most of the time, like the wide side of the field with college hashes. What Seattle what Seattle's doing, and there's like a trickle up effect in the NFL of the old slot corner, like the you know the Justin Coleman the uh, Walter Thurmond, that guy's now kind of playing outside again in, in the NFL. Like the man cover one corner doesn't exist. What does exist more often is this guy who can come down to set an edge and and, uh, and also be a, a coverage guy. He can do everything. Like he's just a, like in the old, old defenses, this would be like a 4-3 Sam, but you have to get lighter and you ha- because you have to cover more and offenses spread you out more. So I don't think Love is that, but I think what Love can do a bit of that. And I think he also frees Adams to do a lot of that as well. Yeah. You know, and all of the quotes regarding the Julian Love signing from Pete Carroll and John Schneider, they've been adamant about this is not a Jamal Adams replacement. But what he does is he hedges against his injury return and he adds versatility you have talked so much about the need for versatility in the scheme. And we we tend to look at football players and assume that, oh, well, you're in the NFL. You can do it all. But there's so few guys who can do it all, as it were, at the NFL level. That's why you have so many specialists. Travis Homer is one of them, yeah. of course. May RIP in peace. You know, it's, it's something where you get a player who really can do multiple things. You know, it's it's a shame for this particular player that the Arizona Cardinals are such an awful franchise, but Buda Baker, if, if, you know, if anybody watched the in season, uh, I don't know if they, they called it hard knocks or, or what it was, but the, the, it was technically hard knocks. Yeah. Yeah. And it was like half the episodes. The coaches were just telling everybody else on the team to be like Buda Baker, but a player like that is something where, you know, it allows you to do so much else. And and I think that's what makes Julian Love really exciting. And he can be a guy that takes over for Jamal Adams. If after this year, the team decides, you know what, it, this hasn't worked out. It's time to move on. I think he's such an exciting player, especially because he's been so prodigious at such a young age. There's no reason to think he can't get any better. One last thing before we get to the draft, because that's what I'm really excited to talk with you about. 
the defensive line, we've talked about bringing in Draymond Jones. They also brought in Jaron Reed, but they've lost a lot of the guys up front as well. Shelby Harris, Quentin Jefferson, Al Woods, LJ Collier. These are guys who Puna Ford may or may not be back, although it sounds like the team is trying. It's it's common this time of year. You know, most teams have lost more guys than they've signed because they're clearing room for draft picks. And this draft does seem to be deep at the defensive line. Uh, how concerned are you given the gains and losses up front? Oh, massively concerned. Like, I'm trying not to panic. Here. <laughs> like, this is bad. This is Great. really bad. That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Go on. This is bad. Like, okay, so like, what did we say last year that the 2 4, they, they did a bit too much of it. Um, and. Maybe that was harm, you know, damaging for the guys who were there who'd shown that they were good in like the bare front in 2021 playing in that style. So now they've got rid of all of them basically. Like Brian Monet's there, and you know, he's described in the owners' meetings by Schneider as a second half of the season player. So if you're going to run more of the bare fronts, you need, and even if you're going to run the two forefront where you need kind of two heavy guys who are on the interior, you need. Any defense, you need the interior defensive linemen. But like, especially in this, you need at least two big guys. And so they have one player on their roster who is over 300 pounds and plays defensive line. And that's Jaron Reed, who, by the way, last year, his run defense technique collapsed. And he he looked like a shadow of his former self. Now, Clint Hurt loves Jaron Reed. Like, I've seen, like, hush, hush. But I've seen a clinic from Clint Hurt where he's talking about how Jan Reed's like his example player. This, and then they let him yeah. walk. Like, and he's like, they let this yeah. guy walk. I'm so pissed. Anyway. Uh, <laughs> but, uh-huh. uh, well, not let him walk. They they fell out. And anyway, Jaron Reed, though, maybe Clint Hurt can harness his run defense again. Maybe he can uh, get his technique up, say, hey, like, you've got to play the run better. Maybe. That's a big if. And by getting rid of Jefferson getting rid of Shelby Harris, getting rid of Al Woods, getting, uh, letting Puna Ford walk for now, your floor from last year has completely gone. The nose tackle market, there's no one left. Like, other than Puna Ford and Al Woods. But you hear Pete Carroll at the owners' meetings, he's like, yeah, we got a couple of great spots for guys. We need to, we need to recruit that goes to our players too. And... John Schneider saying we're really tight against the cap. There's pretty much nothing we can do now. He's asked about restructuring his radio shows. Like, yeah, I guess we could do a bit of that. But like, they're basically, they don't have much room. And Puna Ford, our Woods, they could get more money elsewhere. So it's really, they're just, they need their culture to work. Um, they, they need these guys to want to come back. Like, I don't see any way that Shelby Harris will come back now. Like, I, I think he just, the, the, the money difference is just going to be too much. So... They're they're struggling now. Miles Adams, I'm a fan of, like especially when he's allowed to play, um, like you know, sort of a backup interior defensive lineman. When he's allowed to play like downhill and aggressive and play like three tech in a bear look where everyone's one on one, really like what he can do. Jared Hewitt flashed in the preseason, but these are like not names that, especially Jared Hewitt, like they they don't have anyone and they need yeah. like you can't bet on a rookie like. A rookie's an un- un- a complete unknown. The guys they've let walk, especially like Puna Ford, uh, Shelby Harris, um, and, and I say let walk, the guys who are currently not Seahawks and used to be Seahawks, they 
were really solid when they were allowed to play one on one and they weren't in a difficult front and they they weren't in a difficult front which lacked the answers for what offenses were throwing at it. They weren't in a difficult front that they ran too often, so they they kept getting worked by the, the beaters. They you know they they were just good in the front which which fit them. So I don't know. It's I they they're gonna have to make it work somehow. But if if they don't sign like Puna Ford and uh you know Al Woods or Shelby Harris, then I'd I'd start to get worried. Like Jefferson was poor against the run. He he was basically rushing the pass last year, which is I think he's crafted out a pretty good uh, end of career sort of thing of having high pressure percentages, but not actually caring really about the run game. You talked about Julian Love and all of his versatility on defense. What are your thoughts on deploying him at nose? You say they only have like one or two <laughs> three hundred pounders on the roster. What about a sub two hundred? Just when they zig, you zag, right? Well, Bob, Bobby Wagner's a nose tackle. Like that's close confines. He could do a job. See, that's redundancy at multiple positions, baby. Come on now. Oh there my go. god. Oh my god. All right. All right. <laughs> All right. So so let's get let's get to the the big dance of the offseason, which is of course the NFL draft. It it has become an event nearly as big as the Super Bowl itself. Now, Seattle, five picks in the top 83, four in the top 52. They carry the second most draft capital in the league right now behind only the Texans. With that in mind, you feel like the Seahawks are in a better position roster-wise than they were when the season ended, keeping in mind that they are going to be bringing in potentially four or five new starters. I just can't say that with the interior defensive line position. Mm -hmm. Like, you, you know, maybe they're inspired by starting... Uh, two rookie offensive tackles last year and it working, I doubt it. Maybe they're inspired by, you know, starting two, like, I mean, Mike Jackson wasn't a rookie, but like two very fresh outside corners. But you can't scheme around, as we saw last year, You, it's very hard to scheme around interior defensive line uh, struggles. You can put them in better spots, as we saw last year. But like, if you don't have those guys, you don't have those guys and you'll just get run on. Like, they've completely, I... Yeah, I, <laughs> I don't know what the plan is. Now that could change. And, and, and you know, they've got another disruptive player on the defense. So, I mean, that's big. Julian Love is a, is a really interesting addition. But And I, I think that's kind of understanding how they want to play a bit more. But in terms of the interior defensive line, no. So And that's, a, that's so important. Like, if you, we saw last year what happens if the trenches aren't right. Not a fun answer. Yep. Yeah, it's tough. It's tough. It's tough to do anything. So let's let's get to the juicy stuff here. Most of the conversation surrounding Seattle's draft is centered on the number five pick. I'm going to get your thoughts on that. But one of the reasons we were so excited to have you on is because you have such a deep knowledge of the draft beyond the names that show up in everyone's one round mocks. Like I said, stoked to get to that. But there's no denying that the pick of five is a massive domino. I've been tracking your tweets where you've messed around with the mock draft generators. It's always really interesting to see how that plays out. I've also noticed that in your exercises, you're fond of trading down in the first round. So I'm going to ask you two questions. And just for the sake of discussion, we're imagining that Seattle does not find a trade back package that they like enough. So first question, if you had to bet $10,000 on who Seattle takes there, who would you say? And then after that, who are you hoping that they take? Uh, yeah. So firstly, the, the whole, the trading down stuff, that's just me being a coward. Like it's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's four, it's 4 a.m. Like I'm, I'm too tired for this. Like you know, I'm gonna trade down. Like it's, it's. Can I break the simulate? Can I get like ten top fifty players? 
<laughs> but, <laughs> but, and then, and the te- so $10,000, I think Will Anderson. But the, the problem is, uh, I don't know if, you know, it's very interesting where they're situated, right? Like at, at five, because, you know, there's always talk about these quarterbacks, but like, are Arizona just going to, are they going to try and trade behind Seattle and think, well, we we don't want a quarterback, you'd think. We don't want a quarterback, but if we trade behind Seattle to Las Vegas, then we've got like the third pick of the non-quarterbacks. So we're going to end up probably with Jalen Carter. And do we want to take Jalen Carter? Like there's all these rumors that he's, you know, off teams boards. There's, there's a lot of stuff to unpack there. But then like, you know, so do we stick and pick Will Anderson? Like, but anyway, I'd say Seattle Will Anderson because he is the, you know, he's obviously like by all accounts, he's a, a clear, like good, good football character, good, good, solid person. Um, he had incredibly high SEC production. Last year, Alabama played him inside the tackle loads, but like, so it didn't give him as many wide rush uh, opportunities as you'd expect. His sack total was slightly down, but he still had a lot of sacks. And he's slightly stiff, right? So he's not like the typical Seahawks edge rusher in that mm-hmm. he's not super bendy. He's not super get off. You know, he's fast enough, but he's not rapid up the, up the, uh, up the arc. But, you know, he, he can play outside linebacker. He can do your coverage stuff. He could play on all three downs for Seattle. And because of his rare play strength, which was why Alabama was able to play him inside the tackle. And he's like, smacking up guards, taking on guard tackle combos, not getting moved. Like, And he's 200, probably playing at like 245 pounds. Like, you don't see that. That's just not typical at all. So he could do everything that Seattle requires from an edge player. And he's also super intelligent at like reading blocking schemes and stuff. So like it's, it's not glitzy in like traits wise, but it's very, other than the strength, but it's very glitzy in production. And then the fact that he'd be able to just be a really solid football player. Um, whereas like with Jalen Carter, you've got like, for me, he's the best player in the draft, like based off the tape and, you know, but like that whole post-draft process, the F- Seattle might have some uh, f- horrid flashbacks to what happened with the vehicular, vehicular, vehicle yep. incident uh, f- from, uh, unfortunately, Malik McDowell. Right. You know, there's just so much stuff to unpack there. Like, but like he would, he would be like, in terms of, he's like the prototype of what they want from an interior. He might line. be the best football player in this draft. Yeah, if you he, had no, if you had no concerns about the off-field stuff, I, he's probably the best football player available. Right, right, and like maybe if there wasn't concerns, maybe Chicago stuck at one and picked him. Like he's that good. Totally, he is that. He is that good. Yeah, I, I, you know, I, I have been fond of saying recently that we've reached a point where I almost don't see any way. I'm not thrilled with what Seattle does at five here. You're a Geno guy. I'm a Geno guy. Mike's a Geno guy. Pete is obviously a Geno guy. However, he is 32. He is on a contract that they can get out of after this year or two years pretty easily. It is unlikely Seattle picks this high anytime again in the near future. How do you feel about them taking a quarterback? And if they took one, is there one that you would be more excited about than others? Absolutely. So that that's why it's interesting as well, right? Because then d- does Arizona say to Seattle, yeah, we'll, we'll do a little trade up for you so Seattle can get ahead of the Colts and Arizona's not trading down too far 
But and, and so maybe they get the first overall uh, non-quarterback pick in the draft, and Seattle goes and gets their guy. But does Arizona want to do that to a divisional rival, or do they just say to say the Raiders, who might be quarterback interested? Yeah, screw Seattle. We'll go down to seven, uh, and we know we're going to get the worst pick of the 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 the, the top three non-quarterbacks supposedly. I don't know. Interesting. Anyway, but Anthony Richardson just seems so obvious, like as a Seattle kind of player, like. You know, look at who John Schneider's likes, like traitsy guys. Richardson, accuracy-wise, is pretty scary. Like, the, sure. you know, if he could throw an open, wide-open seam, that'd be nice. Uh, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't mind that. Also, though, super quick release, like just effortless flick of the wrist and then down the field, like, you know, just casual 60 yards, nice. And <laughs> it's just that, and, and then the the way he tested, like his ability to break out of pockets, that there's just no way he should break out of. It, it's just like, and then, you, you know, the, the other thing, you know, you mentioned a certain Geno Smith. He can learn, like, you can kind of give him the kind of Mahomes plan under Alex Smith. You can, you can yep. do all that stuff. I, I imagine Seattle would be big fans of that. And... If they have a guy, like I think they'd take him. Like I, I but I don't think like I don't think Anthony Richardson falls to five. I know, I know. Is how crazy is that? They were talking about like when he decided not to go back to school, there were a lot of people saying, like, I don't know about that. I don't know if this is a day one guy. I don't know if this is a day two guy. And then it's like, okay, he's probably gonna get taken in the first round. And then it was like, he's going in the top half of the draft. And then it's like I don't think he's getting out of the top five. And now he might not be getting out of the top three. My question to you, Maddie, is, is there a single player in this draft you would trade up for? Well, I'd trade up for Carter if he was like, uh, you know, not the, we didn't have all this stuff. And if like the, the boring thing with the draft is we are basically, well, I'm watching tape in a dark room knowing absolutely nothing about this person other than how fast they ran in a 40, if they even did the 40, and, you know, what their production was in college. And now you have to bet $10,000. There you go. There you go. That's the rule. And Yeah, shit. Um, sorry, swear. <laughs> uh, so, you know, we're not... You can watch YouTube videos of them speaking to the media where, you know, they should be media trained, like these are big college stars, but you don't know anything about the character. And the character is obviously the most important thing. So it's a very boring answer. But like, if you're sure that Richardson is a is a good character, I think you bet on the traits. Like, you do it. When do you have this opportunity again to get someone that just incredibly good at uh, throwing the football far downfield really quickly, also running and breaking pockets and extending plays? And okay, he's inaccurate, but, you know, there's reasons for that. Well, that's that's just it, right? Like we're 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 talking about, you know, we we tend to lump Anthony Richardson in with these other athletic quarterbacks that we've seen come in. And and that's been a mixed bag just like with the less athletic quarterbacks. Quarterback is always a mixed bag. The athleticism that Anthony Richardson has is not like anybody else's. He moves like Lamar Jackson at Cam Newton's size. We're talking about a player we we just saw the 1% outcome from Geno Smith this past year. And what we got was probably a top six, top eight quarterback in the NFL. Anthony Richardson's 1% outcome is changing football forever. And I, I'm willing to gamble on that. Yeah, that's pretty much what it is. And, and, you know, again, circling back to how Schneider thinks about quarterbacks, I think he'd be 100% aligned. And, you know, it's interesting. And I think Shane Waldron could have a lot of fun with that too. Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Like, 
I, I don't know. It's, it's very interesting. Like, it's interesting when you look at the, the pro day selfies, right? The, 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 everyone loves them, which apparently is uh, was new quarterback coach uh, Greg Olson's idea. Not that Greg Olson, but uh, <laughs> when you when you when you look at them, they sent um, to to Anthony Richardson, CJ Stroud's pro days, and I've heard that. I mean, I think everyone's heard, but like I've heard, Stroud is the number one pick for Carolina. Then everyone presumes that Houston would take Bryce Young, which like I don't I don't know about that. I haven't heard anything about that, and that seems kind of interesting. Anyway. But when you look at what who Seattle sent to the pro days at Anthony Richardson and CJ Stroud's pro day, they had Aaron Hinline and they had Shane Waldron there. But with Levis, uh, they didn't send uh, Heinlein or Waldron. And with Bryce Young, they didn't send uh, Heinlein. So interesting that there's, you know, they're clearly sending more guys to the Alabama and the Florida Pro Day. And Alabama has Will mm-hmm. Anderson as well, so that's the reason. Of course. Right. But like, right, I right. don't think Lev- – like, get get rid of Levis. Get him get – him, do not do that. Let's uh, let's move back to number 20 because not, another big pick. I mean, even number 20 is higher than where Seattle has drafted most of their time with Pete Carroll and John Schneider. This draft, from what I can tell, seems to be deep enough where you can still get a game changer at number 20. Uh, a couple of guys that – could be there that stand out to me that I'd be excited about is Jackson Smith and Jigba, the wide receiver out of Ohio State. He is the clear wide receiver one in my eyes this year. And I think that position is a little more fragile than a lot of Seattle fans would like to admit. Other guys, um, Osiris, uh, is Osiris Torrance out of yep. Florida. And Nolan Smith, the edge rusher from Georgia. Lucas Van Ness, the edge rusher from Iowa. Those are the guys that I'm kind of hoping are there, you know, when they're at 20, assuming they haven't traded out of that pick. Is there anybody either in that group or outside of that group that you're like, man, I would, I think there's a realistic chance they could get this guy and I would just be jacked. Yeah, that's, that's a super fun pick. As you said, like, because in theory, like you should, you should be able to get like a really solid interior offensive lineman there. If if that's the way way you're inclined, you could, you could be able to get like a wide receiver three, which I agree. Like, okay, Metcalf and Lockett, they kind of trick you into thinking that they'll last forever. But also, we saw what Marquise Goodwin brought last year as a, a valuable uh, like tertiary option. And it would be nice to be a bit more proactive at the wide receiver position and, and go go for that. Like an alternative to like a Smith and Jigbo is going and getting a tight end, which that might sound crazy. Hear me out. So, will Disley contract up at the end of? This year, and he's coming off a unique injury, which didn't require mm. surgery, but like he's been banged up, and he's also he's fine. Like he's a solid tight end; he can block, which is a big plus. But like he, he's all right. Noah fan last year of his deal, expensive, and didn't quite become that clear. Like I need the targets tight end, right? Which fine. He was just a contributor. When they tried to dial up shots to him, they didn't connect for a variety of reasons. And then Colby Parkinson's just never quite gone gone through it. Like he he's never quite fully uh, taken the leap. And again, he's in the last year of his deal. Maybe Gino's second season with him can connect. But like as much as Parkinson's improved his blocking, he has six foot seven and and still struggles with that aspect. So he's kind of like a a role player. He's a third tight end. 
Notre Dame's Michael Mayer is like a legit, yeah. like actual, like he's a player. He can he can play. He's like a ten year. Plug him in at tight end. He can do everything that you want from a tight end. He can be a really good separator. Okay, he runs a four seven forty, but that's not really the point with him. The point is. Like he wanted to be a college basketball player. The point is he plays like a basketball player and that's so overblown or overused, like tired with tight ends talking about, oh, this tight right. end used to play basketball. He, oh, yeah. He, did did you hear that Antonio Gates and Jimmy Graham did. used to play basketball? He did. He did. Um, and, and Mayer, like the way he separates with little stutters and uh, it, it's just all of it looks like a basketball player, like uh stutters at the top of roots uh, like dead legs uh just ability to separate in the short areas where guys matching him up uh and like he didn't test awful like a 6973 cone at 249 pounds six foot uh basically five that's like not bad um but he he'd just be like he just gets open and he just understands that skill and he he was not playing with that good a quarterback he was the obvious threat in that offense like he went off against Alabama uh, last year, maybe the year before, in the Rose Bowl. Mm-hmm. Yep. And, like, they couldn't, you know, it's Alabama, and they just didn't really have a plan for how he was able to separate against their variety of coverages. So he he would be a definite consideration because also Seattle used 12 personnel, so two tight ends, uh, the fifth most in the league, and they used 13 personnel at a high rate as well. So, like, they use multiple tight ends. So really it's like is there a wide receiver three you like like you mentioned smith and jig but i know zay flowers is very interesting i um, love i love zay flowers if jackson smith and jigba is off the board at 20 i'm thinking hard about it right like coming out of boston college um just tested like ticks all the boxes other than the weight is probably slightly lower than um teams would like it's kind of a hallmark of all the receivers in this class outside of quentin johnson it is a small receiver class right like what on earth happened uh they're like if you're 180 pounds you're big they're in this class i know it i know it and and part of that speaks to how the nfl has changed too right it's it's a lot more for for the longest time you were looking for des bryant terrell owens these big prototypical alpha x receivers and there's still massive value in that you need look no further than DK Metcalf, AJ Brown, etc. But you're seeing room for and and I think it really started with Antonio Brown where you if you have elite shiftiness who also has, you know, great ball skills, Tyreek Hill, DeVonta Smith, there's so many Jalen Waddle, I mean, on and on. It's like the more recent you get, the more smaller receivers Deontay Johnson that can be really really effective, put up really big numbers and change an offense despite being small it's it's a lot more about speed angles and spacing now in the passing game than i think it used to be yeah i mean i'm i'm a defensive guy so i call this type of offense fake but <laughs> what they do is but it's like Sean McVay's fault they just condense down the splits they motion them they put them off the line of scrimmage uh, they shift them away from the coverage mismatch they just have so much more space with the way the offenses like construct themselves and organize themselves and they and, you know, the, they have free releases a lot of the time and and free access. Now, that's not always the case, but if they have the free release then or, or they don't have the free release, then they've got more space to work in where the traits you speak about, Jackson, like uh, the shiftiness, the quicks, that can that can shine. And um, I don't, we haven't had the agility testing from Zay Flowers yet, I don't think. But, like, you know, going back to him, 
you just watch his tape. Like he just easily crazy separates tape. him underneath. Like, crazy, crazy separator. And just awful quarterback play. <laughs> so many yards left on the field. There you go. So like that's definitely something that, you know, I would c- consider. Uh, Seattle may consider it, but like just knowing how they operate, are they really going to take a receiver in the first round? Probably not, especially when they're probably not, probably not. There's going to be, and there's going to be some options in, in the second round there too. your Josh Downs is your Jalen Hyatt's players like that. Um, so let's, let's talk about day two Seattle right now, I believe holds picks number 37 and 52 and then 83. Of course, once you get out of the first round, the permutations are innumerable. You see a lot more trading back. You see the talent pool start to flatten out all that kind of stuff. But Assuming they pick around where they're slotted to, who are some guys that we should be bookmarking now for rounds two and three that are potential Seahawks targets? Yeah, this is really interesting because it's like, do they, you know, are they going to, who do they take at five? Because five, we've sort of pigeonholed them into being, you know, probably Will Anderson. You know, I've lost $10,000 on that. Um. You know, or or do they take the outside linebacker? Like, uh, do they take the outside linebacker and Will Anderson? Tyree Wilson would kind of be that as well, but he might have some uh, reps inside. Or do they go and take Jalen Carter and take the interior defensive lineman? Because in this kind of top of the second round area, in theory, there's interesting guys at, at both spots. So you have like BJ Ojolari, outside linebacker, who maybe he's a first rounder with how the draft is, but like realistically, you'd think he'd be there at 37. Right. Do, if they need an edge, then that's like the next best guy, probably in terms of he has bigger size than the rest of them. He has a high pressure percentage. SIS had him at 14%, which is higher than uh, like a Nolan Smith, uh, uh, Will McDonald, uh, and there's scheme things there. A uh, Felix, Annie Duque, Uzoma, um, and he's long as well. So m- maybe that's an option. But then also there's interior defensive linemen who, who, you know, they made me maybe don't have the first round stuff, but they're intriguing enough. Like Mazzy Smith out of Michigan, where <laughs> he is long, he is big, but they don't have long and big interior defensive linemen. And Mazzy Smith could come in. He had 34 reps on the bench press. Uh, and he's Good. just also Golly. disruptive. Like his tape is pretty inconsistent. And he's not like, he doesn't give you as much consistency as you'd like. But his best stuff is like truly like, oh my God, like, how has he got into the backfield that quickly? How how has he just wrecked this guy? Which again, like, you know, go back to what they've said they want, that that might be the fit. Um similarly, interior offensive line, there's still gonna be like a lot of interesting options. Maybe the centers start going, uh, like fi- around fifty-ish. Like uh the NFL doesn't really value uh centers that highly. Seattle's not um, you know, not that uh they don't stand out too much when they when they uh in how they value centers and Evan Brown like solid pickup who we, we didn't talk about in the free agency thing but you know it's a one year deal it would be ideal to actually push him with the young competition and John Michael Schmitz out of Minnesota is the obvious name that everyone will have going to ask you about him do you think he may I mean it's rare for a center to go in the first round but he seems like the type who might do you think that he makes it out of the first round and if so does Seattle have to use 37 on him if they want him uh, it's interesting, like, cause athletically he didn't test amazing. Like he's like above average. And then 
uh, age wise, he is old. Like he's, he he's like twenty four. This whole classes though, I think a lot of that has to do with the COVID year too. And yeah, and then NIL as well. Like it'll be interesting to see how that impacts it down the line. Sure. I mean, guys getting paid to stay in college. Yeah, and and the other thing with Michael Schmitz as well is like recency bias. Like um, people look at like how Creed Humphrey. Let's not talk about him, but they'll look at how that was a success, and that may inspire teams to to be a bit more bold. Then, yeah, he is not Creed day, Humphrey. Creed Humphrey was the most athletic center to ever play. Right, and he played really good football, and yet, where did he go? So, like, mm-hmm. I, I don't know. It'll be That's interesting. True. I don't think he's, like... The the one thing that John Michael Schmitz does have, which Creed Humphrey didn't, is he's actually a bigger type of center. So... Right. It just depends who you need to center, really. Like, the, the way the draft goes, right? Like, who needs what? For, uh, once the... Once teams start getting anxious or or they think that another team needs them, then they'll they'll take them higher. But like, which is why like you know, players could be like in the twenty forty range. Like they they're not necessarily a like absolute nailed on to go top thirty or whatever. But um, th- one guy I really like is uh, TCU Steve Avila. If we're talking okay. uh, inside guys, and he kind of fills Seattle in like the versatility he has as well. Now, I was impressed with him at the Senior Bowl, but I was kind of wanting more based off like his tape where he can displace people. He has experience playing right tackle. Like He played there in his freshman season on the scout team. He played uh, right tackle for the scout team. But he's mainly kind of um, mainly played guard at TCU. And, okay, testing-wise, it was up and down, like very poor broad jump. But he can, he just moves people. He understands like his body. Um, he has 33 inch arms, which Seattle, they, they would like arm length. And yeah, he can play center as well. And I think having that flexibility, like Phil Haynes by no means is like a sure thing. Like he was fi- right. pretty good last year, but you'd like to push him too. Killing two birds with one stone. I'm a, a big fan of that rather than just, you know, especially this high in the draft. Like ideally you don't want to have to take a a guard and a center. Um, So totally. uh, And maybe, you know, maybe they go cheaper on it and and look later into the draft for for the center. Uh, There are some names, but, um, and and the other option for the right guard thing is, okay, let's go and get a a right tackle. Let's go and get, um, uh, and convert them to right guard or that it's been theorized kick Abraham Lucas inside. I don't like doing that to Abraham Lucas. But no, like, he was so good out there. He was. And like, I don't see how that helps him. But like, interestingly, and this would be funny, but they, they had a top 30 visit with Ohio State's Dewan Jones, right? Who's a mm-hmm. massive right tackle, like mm-hmm. 6'8", 36 inch, well, basically 37 inch long arms, like massive, 374 pounds. Some uh, concerns over his conditioning. Weirdly enough, like he he'd actually be better, I think, uh, as a guard. The problem, obviously, is <laughs> he's six for eight. But <laughs> so finding a po- interior passing lane to actually hit, uh, right, with him in uh, a guard would would be tricky. But like in in terms of like what what he'd bring, like he's just his size. Like you have to run around that, and like all of the problems he has at tackle, where he's sort of he's trying to get out in space, and his uh his feet get stuck in the ground, or or um. You know he's he's tall, so it's it's difficult. But like a guard, you don't have to set as long and overset as long or be as wide. So 
I was trying to unpick why they'd have a top 30 visit with him. Yeah. So let's let's go back. You know, day, day three kind of becomes a little bit of an afterthought draft process. Everyone is still beaming and gleaming and breaking down the top picks. Sometimes, you know, it's round two, round three guys. They're still getting a lot of attention. But Seattle has over the years, and, and lots of teams have, but few teams have had as much day three success as uh, the Seahawks have. You don't need to look any further than Tariq Woolen and Kobe Bryant last year. And then, of course, you go back to the Cam Chancellors and the Richard Shermans and the Doug Baldwins and on and on. Are there any potential diamonds in the rough that you see in picks four or rounds four through seven that you're like, you know what, this guy, this guy feels like a Seahawk? I'm upset because the guy that I thought that would be was um was Julius Brents out of Kansas State. Like he had the senior bowl, he was the most patient. I was like, this guy is so long. And like he looks pretty quick as well. It's like, this is interesting. And he's very explosive. And then he like blows up the combine and everyone picks up on him. And with the fact that Woolen, like long corner, uh, I don't think Kansas State's Julius Brents is 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 that anymore. So I'm still making my way through the like I've done the obvious guys. I'm still making my way through the the kind of later later round guys. Another one as well. I because like I, this might seem stupid because now you know if they don't get taken there and and they're kind of getting pushed up in the process. But like Roshan Johnson out of Texas, I love like him. Bijan Robinson's backup, like. Some people might be listening and be like, no, he's like a round three player. But like, he is a running back. He didn't get the full opportunity to show what he could do because of B. John Robinson. But like, he was amazing at the senior bowl. He got hurt after the first practice, like broke his hand. But the way he was hitting stuff downhill, just his burst, like he's he's a big back as well. Um, Put on Roshan Johnson tape, man. He is Chris Carson. Yeah, yeah. He's he's super physical um, and, and looks to run people over. And like a, a four five nine forty supposedly from his pro day, like that's not great. So maybe he does drop a bit, um, but like he has burst and he he hits stuff downhill. Like he'll he'll run through people as well. They need a running back. Like they they definitely need a running back. Penny leaving, um, you know, Travis Homer going. R.I.P. They hmm. they they need a back. So Roshan Johnson's a very exciting name, and then I don't know if like. Um, wow, I'm completely blanking on his name. Who's the Michigan State wide receiver? Uh, Jaden Reed. Yeah, Jaden Reed. There you go. I always get him confused with Jalen Wayne. Like, that doesn't make sense, does it? Uh, <laughs> Jaden Reed. Now, again, maybe he is a, a higher pick than that, but some of these guys have to go later. Uh, he is very interesting as kind of like... Uh, the way he wins at vertically, like in vertical routes, like boxes guys out, uh, sort of bucket catches, high points the ball, even though he's, you know, only five, uh, well, he's basically 5'11". Uh, the way he can uh, separate with his footwork and keeps things clean. Um, you know, he ran a 4'4", 40 so like that's, that's quick enough. Um, tested okay, but like he just gets open and, and separates, not the fastest, and uh, not the quickest, but like he, he'd be like a interesting compliment, say to like D. Eskridge's role. Like, but I think I think he's more like he could do like kind of the locket stuff. Um, kind of there's locket elements there. And again, at the C- he, at the senior bowl, he was the best receiver. So 
level of competition as well. I think we learned that the draft truly does start in mobile. Which is the thing. Yeah. Well, and I mean, Jim Nagy is like best friends with John Schneider. Nagy, of course, being the guy who puts on the senior bowl and Seattle has, I think, often to their own detriment, leaned too heavily on senior bowl performance at the top of the draft. But, you know, when you get later on, you that's I, I do think that that's a pretty fertile hunting ground for difference makers is is guys at that because you are you are seeing a bunch of four year collegiate studs competing against each other just right out in the open, which you don't get you don't get with the underclassmen with the early declares. They don't there's not a junior bowl for them to go play against each other with right so uh yeah it's going to be really interesting to see who some of the winners from the senior bowl are that make their way onto the seahawks roster because it happens every year maddie there is no question this is the most exciting draft in eons for the seahawks we really appreciate you lending your expertise to the discussion personally i'm grateful to have some names to bookmark for later in the draft as we get closer but before we get out of here where can people find more of you Thank you for having me. I've very much enjoyed it. Uh, so you can find me on Twitter at Matty F for football Brown. <laughs> and you can follow at Seahawks on tape, which is my Substack where I post Seahawks articles like why Geno Smith is going to prove doubters wrong after the preseason. Nice. Um, that was him. <laughs> there you go. That was him. First um, on the train. Uh, <laughs> There you go. And you can uh, listen to, I, I do a podcast like everyone does with uh, C-Mike Spin Move Griffin uh, called uh, Seattle Overload, so at Seattle Overload, where we, it's, it's quite nerdy. Like we, we talk about X's and O's and stuff. We're breaking down the draft prospects right now. And I'm also available for hire if people want to pay me money to, to write about nerdy things. So there you go. Yeah. You're not going to find a better candidate for that. And yeah, Seattle Overload podcast, you know, we've, We've plugged it on this show before. It's a great one. My opinion, easily one of the two best Seahawks podcasts out there. So make sure you're checking that out. Uh, and damn, man. I mean, just like that, we're one week closer to the biggest weekend of the biggest offseason in years. Thanks again to Maddie for all of his insight. As for us, you can find Mike and I on social media as well. I am on Twitter at, at Jackson Bevins. That's J-A-C-S-O-N. Mike is on Twitter at, at Mike Barwin. And the show itself is at Cigar Thoughts. You can also find us on Instagram at, at Cigar Thoughts NFL and on Facebook at Seahawks Cigar Thoughts. Of course, you can listen to this show and read every article at fieldgoals.com slash cigar thoughts. And if you're listening on Spotify or Apple Podcasts and you like the show, drop us a five-star rating, leave a quick review. We have some really, really exciting developments coming with this show here over the next month or two. Very excited to be telling you guys about that as we get closer. But in the meantime, thank you to all of y'all listening for your continued support of this show. We know you've only got so much time to have stuff coming in through your ears. We are honored to be a big part of that for you. Please know that by sharing the show on social media and with your friends, you do give us the juice to keep making this happen. We will be back soon, but until then, onwards and upwards, my friends. Mm-hmm.